that's good. Glory, glory, glory. Amen. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? And Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your presence that's here this, this evening, Lord. And Lord, we're so grateful when you come, Lord. It makes all the difference, Lord. And we just want to praise you and thank you for all that you do for us, oh God. We have so much to be grateful, so much to be thankful for, Lord. Lord, we want to welcome you tonight, Lord. I pray and thank you for all the singing that's been done and all the, the words that have been spoken so far. And I pray that you just take this part of the service, oh God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me get myself out of the way completely, Lord, and that you could speak, oh God. I just want to submit everything I'd have into your hands now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you to the musicians. Certainly enjoyed the music tonight. How many is happy to be in church tonight? Amen. Amen. We'll turn to Psalms chapter 46 and John chapter 7. And it's, a, it's still a strange thing for me, I'll say, to stand up here. And it wasn't so strange maybe to song lead, but to be up here and speak, I, I don't think there's any manual or handbook on how to study or how to do this. And I, so thank you for your grace with me as I've probably stumbled around and all that we've done in the first couple of times. But... Thank you for the pull. Amen. This church loves to pull on the word, and I so appreciate that. And it's a little nerve-wracking, Brother Menno's here. I've snuck in on a few of your services now, but now you snuck in on ours. And Good to have you here. And um, we're in a battle, but we're in a good fight. And we know we're on the winning side. And I just want to take a look at just a little thought that's been running through my mind. And the, the title is, There is a River. There is a river. Psalms chapter 46, verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and, tr be, and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, there is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad who? The city of God. And that's you. And that's me. There is a river whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. John chapter 7, verse 37. This is Jesus. He had gone down to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a, a very special feast. And this was on the eighth day of that feast, the last great day of the feast. He stood up. And he cried, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures hath said, out of his belly, so something that's inside of you, not just on the outside, not just somewhere else, but something on the inside of you shall flow rivers of living water. And the last verse says, but he, this he spake he of the Spirit. What is that living water? The Holy Spirit, which they that believe on me, him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. God bless you. You can have your seats. As I said, my title tonight is, There is a River, and if I, if I were to put a, a subtitle to it, it would be, Go Get a Drink. Go Get Your Drink. It's available for you. It's a living water that's for you. And in John chapter 4, we find a story of the woman at the well. And we find that this story was possibly one of the most quoted scriptural stories that Brother Branham would bring up. Time after time at the end of a prayer line or going into a prayer line or into a service, he would talk about the woman at the well. And he loved to talk about her because there was a life that would be transformed. He loved to talk about her because it was also a woman that had a seed inside of her that no matter what the outside had looked like, no matter how marred she had been, no matter how black the outside had looked like, there was something in her. And because there was something in her, she had a thirst. And she had a desire for something that was more, that was beyond the life that she had been living. And in John chapter 4, it says that he left Judea in verse 3 and departed into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. He had to go there because there was a seed that was calling him. Then he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So there was some water there. There was something there that had a life source there that had been a life source for generation 
after generation and the Israelites in the natural. God bless you, Brother Ed, for preaching the natural and the spiritual. There's so much, even tonight, I want to look at that's just a parallel. There was a natural water that had given natural strength to the Samaritans, to the Jews. But here she had come today for a natural drink, and she was going to get so much more. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which was about noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. She came that day in need of natural water. But she came in need of so much more. Because there had been a seed inside of her, there was a seed inside of her that was calling for something more than she might not have realized that she needed. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. And the woman said unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew, ask me for a drink? We don't talk. We don't deal with one another. And he said, If thou knewest, the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. I want to talk tonight about living water. A life that, a water that is a life, a water that is alive, and something that's more real than just the water that you have in a water bottle, or in a well, or in a lake, or in a river. She said, you don't have anything to draw with. And they begin to have a conversation. And then you notice something happens in verse, in verse, uh, I'm sorry. She said in verse 15, the, the woman saith unto him, give me this water. So she starts the process of saying, okay, you've, you've sold me on. There's something interesting about this water. You're a strange man. You're a Jew. You don't normally talk to me, but here you are and you're talking to me. Give me this water. And that's what we have to do. Is when, when, God, when that water is offered to us, we have to say, okay, well, give it to me. And then a conversation starts, and something opens up because he begins to give her a drink. And what was that drink? He begins to discern her thoughts in her life and begins to make a transformation. And during this part, she's drinking. And this is the, the interaction of her drinking that living water. Jesus said, Thou ha- go call thy husband and come hither. Suddenly the word is beginning to cut and discern and divine the thoughts and intents of the heart. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And thou hast said, truly. And she says, and she's drinking now. And she says, the woman, the woman says, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And now her real thirst comes forth. She had been an immoral woman. She had maybe been forced into that life. She had been trying to cover up a thirst that she had had with other actions. But here's her real thirst. She said, where do we worship? She had a question for God. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Our people say you have to worship here. You guys say you have to worship there. And we've been fighting over this for generations. I want a God I can worship, she says. Where do I worship him? She had come to the fountain of life and she had a question. She wanted truly, truly to have that thirst quenched. Like Brother Mark was talking about, she wanted to fix the root of the problem. And the symptoms were all around, but there was a root of the problem, and that was because she needed a real drink of water. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And in verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye not know what. We know what we worship for. Salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh. And I'm so thankful And now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And we know that then she left her water pot because she had had a drink. She didn't need that anymore. She left her water pot. Another story that is just one chapter over is a man that laid at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. He laid at a pool of water. There was something in that water that would happen. There was an angel that would come and trouble that water. And in in John chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water waiting for life to come in the water, waiting for something to happen that they could step into. And it was a good desire, and I believe many people would have been helped. But this man couldn't seem to get in. 
For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, had been, which had had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been there a long time in that case, he said unto him, and he asked him a question, just like Jesus asked the woman at the well. If you knew who you're talking to, you'd ask me for a drink. And he, but first you asked him, give me a drink. Started a conversation. He asked him a question and he said, wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be well? Do you really want a drink of this living water? And he doesn't answer the question. He gives a whole bunch of excuses. He looks at completely external problems. The impotent man answered him saying, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another one steppeth down before me. Didn't answer the question at all. That's not what Jesus asked. Jesus asked, do you want to be well? And he says, this person hurt me, and that friend didn't help me get in, and that person didn't. And he pointed to all of these external things, that it, all of the reasons why he had never been able to be well, that he thought were the reasons. But Jesus wasn't there to deal with, and truly, the man had a point. 38 years, I think he had some pretty poor friends. You'd think for, after 38 years, no one had helped him get into the water. That water was maybe troubled every few months or every few weeks. I don't know. And no one had waited long enough, over 38 years to help him. He had a right to be bitter, perhaps. There was, he had had no good help. But he had gotten bitter by that. And he had looked at that, and he had forgot that there was someone that could help him. That there was, some, there was a God of Israel that could help him. And what's beautiful about this, when the woman at the well couldn't help herself, living water came to her. And when the, the man at the pool of Bethesda couldn't get into the water, the water came to him. And the water came to him to change him and go beyond all of his external circumstances and fix the real problem. He wanted to be well. Not his friend, not who hurt him, not what had happened. But he, he needed to be well. And God wanted to fix the root of the problem and give him a drink of living water. In 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'm jumping from story to story to build a background, but there was a man named Nabon. And now I'm coming down to not just pools of water, but, but a river. There was a man named Naaman who, who was a leper. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, he was a captain of the host of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master, honorable, because by him the Lord... The Lord had given him deliverance unto Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a man that had secret sin. Leprosy was a type of sin. And so as much as he was a captain of the host, that's what everyone knew him as, he was a leper. And when you're a leper, you're usually um, sent to the colony. So if the fact that he was a captain of the host still and a leper is, means he was hiding it. There was something that he would have to hide that he held back from everyone. And it was something that he was holding on to in his life. He buckled up the armor. He did all that he would do to make sure. If you want to hear a, a beautiful sermon on that, Brother Ron had just preached. Secret lives, name and go wash. Last week in Louisiana, he had hidden something. But there was a river. He got down to the river. He, he, he went and sent and, and, and went to Elisha's door. And Elisha only sent out a messenger to meet him. And said, go wash in where? In the Jordan River. There was many rivers back in Syria that Naaman liked. There was many other places that he thought were cleaner and better. The, the better psychology to deal with his habit or a better way of dealing with whatever he was supposed to thought that he could fix his internal problem. The rivers of the world, the rivers of science, whatever it was. But there was a muddy Jordan River. And that was the river that he was to go to. What is water? Well, water is two, you know, two hydrogens and one oxygen. I remember, this is for all the folks in science class still, I remember uh, my, my physics teacher coming out chuckling to himself at the, after he had had his chemistry class before our physics class in, in high school, and he said he had gotten all the kids really scared that day in chemistry because they were dealing with a special substance. It's a clear liquid, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a clear liquid, and, and, and they're going to be dealing with dihydrogen monoxide today. 
And you've got to be really careful with that stuff. You, you don't want to touch it. You've you got to be really careful with that stuff. And if you break down dihydrogen monoxide, dihydrogen is two hydrogens and monoxide is one oxygen. So he had them scared of water. But we know really that water is something that is, is what we need. It's a life source. We know that water is, is what gives us strength. We know that water is what keeps us alive. Our body is somewhere around 80% water. It's so important. In fact, even in the beginning of creation, and in the next maybe 15 or 20 minutes, we'll go from Genesis to Revelations, but we'll only keep it to 15 minutes, 20 minutes, before we'll move on to something else. In the beginning, God moved very quickly. In Genesis chapter 1, he created the heavens and the earth. And then he moved across the face of the waters. Right off the bat. Hardly, the earth was out without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the waters. Before he even mentioned light, which is one of the big things, he mentioned the waters. And then there was a move that was made over the waters. And then the earth was formed and things began to be brought forth. And out of that was a garden called Eden. And through the garden of Eden flowed a river. The first mention of the river of life. Now that river of life was a special river. That river watered Eden. A beautiful garden of, of, of fruit trees and all kinds of things that God had made. His perfection. Something that was perfect. Something that man could enjoy. Something that was a perfect paradise. And through it was a river. Now in, through Edmonton we have the North Saskatchewan River. All through civilization, the great cities were founded on rivers. There was, there's the Amazon River. There's the Nile River. There's, uh, there's rivers through China that are great. There are massive rivers, and that's where the civilizations were founded on because they would be a source of strength, a source of transportation, sanitation, everything. And so you'd build your powerful cities on a river. And so Eden, and even the city of God, is not any different. There's a river that flows through it. Now, through Eden, and I want to take a contrast, because if we see that there are two vines in the Bible, the true vine and the false vine, that means there's two rivers in the Bible. There's the river of life and the rivers of Babylon, or the rivers of Satan. And I want to take a quick look at that. And In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And after it went out of Eden... From thence it was parted and went into four heads. And in verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon, which went, which, that which is compassed with the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And I think history isn't even quite sure where that river is. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the onyx stone. And in verse 13, and the name of that second river is Gihon. And the same is that compassed with the whole land of Ethiopia. And I think the Amplified would say the land of Cush. And in the land of the third river, and these are the two rivers I want to look at a little bit, the third river is Hedekel, or the Tigris River. And, and it is which goeth toward the east of Assyria. Now, these are two real rivers today in 2021, the Tigris River, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, these two rivers were the rivers of Babylon. In fact, especially the river Euphrates, which went through the center of Babylon. This was the river that, as much as it had started in Eden, and it started in a good place, and even in today's history would have started in Turkey and worked its way through, I believe, Syria and all the way down through Iraq before it empties in the Persian Gulf. And, then, and, the, and the Tigris River and the Euphrates River come together at a point right around where they figure Eden might have been and where Babylon definitely was. You can find it. In fact, I was watching videos, or watching a video. In Iraq, you can see the ruins of some of ancient Babylon. Saddam Hussein built a palace right next by, right nearby. I kind of wonder if he maybe thought it, he would be some great ruler. But right in Iraq, you have these rivers that go all the way back to Genesis. And there's something about them. Remember that a river is a source of strength and a source of life. Now, Brother Ed preached in Genesis, I think, 12 and 13 and 17, but he didn't touch 15, so I got to use that one tonight. And in Genesis chapter 15, God gives Abraham a covenant. And this is the first covenant that I, or 
maybe not the first one, but this is one of the covenants where he lays out the boundaries of the promised land. And the promised land, the boundaries were in between two rivers. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and after shall they come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, and, a smoke, and behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those two pieces. In the same day, Abraham, God made a, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given thee. And he gives them two borders. From this river of Egypt, which is the Nile, another great river of Egypt, which types the world, another river of Babylon for all intents and purposes. From this river of Egypt unto the great river. And the Bible says it, the great river. It calls it a great river, the river Euphrates. So here's Abraham's promised land, bordered by Egypt and bordered by Euphrates. And what is it any different than us as the believers tonight? We have to work. We have to live. We have our hobbies. We have our things. Our inheritance is in a certain place, bordered by the enemy all around us. And we have to take part in what we have to take part in. But our inheritance is not in those rivers. Our inheritance is right in the promised land. Our inheritance is where God has put us. But those rivers have an influence on us. They're right next door. They're on either side of us. Now, Babylon is a, even in his, what's amazing to me as well, when you look at biblical stories, history bears them out. You go back to, Brother Brandon would say in the Church Age book, the, the profane history, the history that's laid out. It bears it out. And there was a great city called Babylon. It was the head of gold. But there came a day when that great city, Babylon, the head of gold, had to fall. And it had to be passed on to the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus the Great. And you say, John, where are you going? Well, well stay with me and we'll, we'll get there. It'll be... It. Now, in order for them to take over this great city, there would have to be something that they had to do. But before we get there, Brother Branham would say in the handwriting on the wall, talking about Babylon, talking about uh, there was Nebuchadnezzar and now Belshazzar was the king. Babylon sat just in that great fertile valley there and it was surrounded and irrigated by the Euphrates River and the Tigris. And it was a great agricultural center. And Babylon was a great city. History, it was amazing to me. I was reading a piece today to say the historians would all put, they said the historians, every historian except for the Bible showed how great Babylon was. The Bible was the only one with a negative view of Babylon. It was a beautiful place. And history seemed to catch this interesting thing. Only the biblical history says it's bad. But to the world, it was beautiful. I don't believe, I, I, I've had this thought, you know, when the, when the children of Israel were, were, were taking over Canaan and they had to fight these Amalekites and these Amorites and these Philistines, I don't think that they were just barbarians. They were attractive people. Their culture was attractive. There was something about it that was drawing. They didn't want to just go and kill them. There was something, there was a spirit, just like when you go through West Sodom Mall today. There's an attraction. It doesn't look like they're all bar barbarians. But there's something that, that pulls on you if you let it. Right. Now, and Babylon was a great city and approximately about 120 miles around the city, 30 miles each side, that would make it 120 miles around. They say that the streets in the city of Babylon was some 200 feet across. The walls were 80 foot thick and practically 200 feet high. You'd feel real secure in that city. Not only had Daniel prophesied you were the head of gold, but you were really surrounded. The walls were 80 foot thick and practically 200 feet high. They could run chariot races across these walls with the chariots, and the gates were made out of brass, and those gates could be 200 feet across. And right in the center of the city sat the palace, and the palace was the throne, and through 
the center of the city came the great river Euphrates. If you'll notice it, it's the city of the devil for it's designed like the city of God. As the river of life goes before the throne in the right place. The devil can only pervert. And in this city, they had great swinging gardens off the walls around. And it was such a great mighty nation at the time. And until it had whipped the known world and the world was paying tribute. It had progressed further in science and had the latest things that science could produce. It had the latest chariots, the latest designs, the most powerful armors, and the best of metals. It was an outstanding to the rest of the world. So, unbelievable walls, 80 foot thick. How do you get in? There was a life source called the River Euphrates. And if they could mess with that, this is historical too, if they could mess with that, there was something that they could do. And in this great city, in this world, for an army, they felt there was no way in the world for an army to ever invade the city. The great walls, their modern equipment, they were blocked off. But little did they know that a wicked nation called the Medes and the Persians, Brother Brandon would say, which are now the Hindus of India. How little did they know that many miles away, the city of Babylon's here, the river is flowing here, there's walls. They had to get the river through the walls at the bottom. And over here, the Medes and the Persians were diverting the water off and making the river go down and drying out their source of life. And then when the water dried out, they went under the walls and Belshazzar's party was over. That source of life, the devil thought he was strong. The devil thinks he's strong. Little did they know that many miles away was digging a riverbed to turn the Euphrates River so that they could march under the walls. When they felt that they were secure, at the time they felt that way, if they did feel that, then they went waiting in sin. It seems that when man gets to a place that he feels he is self-sufficient, Sin begins to take a hold of him. The church, the nation, the individual that feels he doesn't need any help from the outside, sin begins to take a reign in him. That is true. So how did Babylon fall? The Euphrates was dried up. Their source of life was dried up. So Babylon rose and fell, and the Medes and Persians rose and fell, and then the Grecians came and then a Roman kingdom rose. And we don't deal now with natural Babylon. We deal with spiritual Babylon. Now, the doom of spiritual Babylon is prophesied. Did you know that? We know that this world is not going to, of course we know that, but this world is not going to stand. Brother Branham would say, notice, and I just want to go quickly into the sixth trumpet and the sixth violin. As soon as you say those things, I know sometimes that sounds, but follow me. We're just on a simple train with the river Euphrates. Notice in Revelations, the ninth chapter and the 13th verse, notice real close. And the, and the, the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, the sixth vial, they'll all have parallels with each other. Now notice real close under the sixth trumpet, Revelations 9.13, under the sixth trumpet, there was 200,000, he says thousand, 200,000 horsemen that were bound in where? the river Euphrates, was turned loose under the sixth trumpet. Now, there's not 200,000 horsemen in the world, but there was 200,000 horsemen. They wasn't natural horses. They breathed fire. They had breastplates of jasper. And at the end of the tail, they looked like a serpent. See, it was spiritual horses, spiritual devils, and they were looking for something to do. And they had been bound in the Euphrates all these years, supernatural devils. What was it? The old Roman Empire being revived. They were coming back in our time. The persecution of the Jews. What was it? As, as the Roman Empire was being revived in these last hundred years, they began to look for a target and they began to focus on the Jews. They had been bound for nearly 2,000 years at the river Euphrates. Can't cross to the promise, a religious sect that was trying to get to the other side. Euphrates, you know, came through Eden, he said, but they were bound there, 200,000 devils. And what happens under the sixth trumpet? They return loose on the Jews. And I believe now, I think they're a little bit interested in us. Now, I want to make one more scripture, and then we'll leave the, we'll, we'll, we'll take maybe another step farther. Doom is prophesied for Babylon. When you look at the vials that begin to pour out, they were poured out on the folks without, 
the seal of God, the people without the mark of the beast. And when the sixth vial went forth, I wonder if we all turn to Romans 16, verse 12. This is how powerful Satan's kingdom is. It's not powerful (laughs) in the long run. It's powerful in one way, but it will be defeated. In Romans 6, chapter 12, or chapter 16, verse 12, it says this, And the angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Brother Branham would say he had a question about it. What is the significance does the Euphrates River have in the Bible? What is its spiritual significance? He says, the Euphrates River, it's always been a good, great river because the Euphrates River had a great place in the Bible. The first place we find it, it went through Eden. Euphrates River did. It said, came it right through Eden. The next we find out, the Euphrates River also was a river that went right through Babylon. Same river. The Euphrates River went right through Babylon. Now we find out the angel poured out his vial upon the Euphrates and dried it up that the king of the north might come through. And I think that that will actually be, will be at the end time when they come into Armageddon. See, they will have to come right through Egypt there, right through them countries, and they'll have to cross the Euphrates. In Babylon, it fell because a river dried up. Now, if you look at the news, just a little current events plug, type in Euphrates River drying up. You'll find in the last year, and in fact, the last four months, a number of videos talking about how that river is drying up. And what's happening is Turkey and Syria are playing political games with Iraq. They're building dams. And they're taking away a lot of energy off the start of the river. By the time it gets to the end, where Babylon should have been, it's really kind of dirty, full of a lot of trash, and really low. And then you'll find a lot of videos talking about prophecy fulfilled. And we don't want to get to say one thing or the other what it is. But what I believe I can say is, the natural types the spiritual in this, that Satan's kingdom is running out. Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. What day it'll be, I don't know. What that will look like, I don't know. But the last time the Euphrates River dried up in Babylon, they fell. And this time, spiritually, as the river dries up, they can't figure out what to do with COVID. They try to do this, they try to do that. The economy's shaking. Everything is turned upside down and Satan's river is drying up. That means that there's a great day for us ahead. There's a great day for the people of God. Hallelujah. In Revelation 21, it talks about a city with a river going through it, and we'll just leave it at that, and we'll move on a little bit. But there we went from Genesis to Revelation in 20 minutes. Now, that water is so important to us because each of us have a thirst for something. Brother Branham would preach the message thirst, and he would talk about a deer. He would talk about, I believe, Psalms 42, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so my soul panteth after thee. And then he would talk about that heart, that deer. Having been wounded, it needed something. He said any great hunter would know that when you've got a deer, when you've shot a deer, if that deer can get to water, he's gone. You don't have a chance. But if you can get to him before he can get to water, you have him just like any, any predator that would be after that deer, and just like the devil that would be after us. There's something that we need, but just a little, now a turn. We, we, we all too often can substitute it. That drink that we need from God, we can substitute it with something else, and we can substitute it with the rivers of Babylon, the wrong rivers, the river Euphrates, the wrong source of death. Brother Branham would say this, we're all born with a thirst, this is in the sixth seal, and only God can quench it, but so often we turn to a substitute. And what makes a man do wrong, what makes him drink and carry on, or a woman do wrong, is because she is trying to, there's something in her thirsty, like the woman at the well. There's something in him thirsting, and they're trying to quench that holy thirst with the things of the world, when God ought to be that quench. He made you that way to thirst. That's the reason you thirst for something. God made you that way so you could turn that holy thirst to him. But when you try to quench that, he says, how dare anyone do that? You have no right to do that, to try to quench that holy thirst that you thirst for something, and then you turn it into a world to satisfy it with the world. You can't do it. There's only one thing that will fill it up. That's God 
and he made you that way. Brother Brandon would say he perverts the true nature. I'll drop down. Now, if a deer was panning after the water brook, what if someone came along, another buddy deer would come and say, say, I'll tell you what I could do. I know there's a mud hole down here. The deer wouldn't want that. It wouldn't do him any good. Now, if, that, 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 now if there's, something, there's nothing that can satisfy that thirst in the human being until God comes in, he must have it or die. And no person has a right to hush or satisfy that holy thirst that's in him by the things of the world. We don't want the things of the world. Brother Ed, God bless you for what you preached this morning. We don't want all of those things. We want to lay all of those substitutes aside, those things that draw our strength, our energy, our time. There is a real river. The streams whereof make glad the city of God. Not the rivers of Babylon, not those other places. There's a real river. Now that river is ours to be taken freely. In Isaiah chapter 55, I wonder if we could turn to it just for a quick second. That's so I can turn to it for a quick second. See, Naaman, when he was healed of leprosy, he, he was healed, but he, he, he didn't have tons and tons of wisdom necessarily because after he was healed, he tried to pay Elisha. And eventually, I believe Gehazi tried to take that payment and got that leprosy. But what he didn't know was this. The Bible says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, it's free, come to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy mine and milk without money and without price. There's no price attached to it. There's nothing that God, is, he wants you, but he just, he wants to give it to you. He wants to give you that drink. It says, wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. There's a fountain open in the house of David to them that would receive. Come and drink from that fountain without money, without price, without your good works. Nothing but the blood of Jesus and my good works is not how that song goes. It's only through the blood. And there's something that he wants to give you freely. In Ezekiel, I'm sorry, I keep jumping to many different places, but in Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel was brought to a river. He was brought to a, 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 a big river, and it, and it says, Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And in verse 2, sorry, if, uh, then he brought me out of the way of the gate northward and led me about the way unto the utter gate by the way that looked eastward and behold, there ran waters out of the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits and he brought me through the waters. Now this is the invitation to go get a drink, is this example right here. What we should do with it, how we should approach that invitation. He measured a thousand cubits and he brought me through the waters and the waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand. He brought me through the waters and the waters were to the knees. And then he measured a thousand and he brought me through and the waters were to the loins. Keep moving. As you start to get into that water, keep going. It gets deeper. It gets richer. It gets sweeter. It gets purer as the days go by. Afterward, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. 
And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. And when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. These waters issued forth toward the east country and go down into the desert and into the sea, which bring forth into the sea. The waters shall be healed. I believe Psalms chapter 1 talks about a man that blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of ungodly. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Nothing to fear. Nothing to worry. Because he's in the right place. Now our enemy is a real enemy. Our enemy has his rivers of Babylon. Our enemy likes to, 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 to try to show himself as something, but he's only a bluff. He's only ever an impersonator. And in the Bible, we know that it says that he would go forth like a roaring lion. But we serve the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he would go forth impersonating a lion like a lion. But I noticed something else as I was looking at, and actually it was, it was in Saskatchewan. Brother Duane was preaching and something struck me. Brother Lawson. But we know that our enemy is only an impersonator ever. In Jeremiah at 46, it talks about the rivers of Egypt, the Nile. Who is this that cometh up as a flood? Whose waters are as the rivers? Egypt riseth up like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. So he's purporting to be something. Now this scripture, that, this next one, we all know, maybe by heart, but maybe we've never seen it this way. It says in Isaiah 59, 19, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in, how? Only like a flood. Only like a river. Only like something that has power to cover over you. Only like something that would have any power over you. He'll come in like a flood. He'll come in with power and with everything that he has, but he's just impersonating a flood. He's just impersonating the real river of life. He's just impersonating the real. The, the scripture talks about the glories of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He is no flood like that. He is no enemy like that. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against him. Raise the banner high in Jerusalem. Samson went out and, and fought a, a, a lion. Took, he found a, in Judges 15, I'll just read the story. He found a jawbone of an ass. He put forth his hand. He took it and he slew a thousand men therewith. And Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of an ass have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass when he made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand. And he named the place. And then it says he was sore athirst. And it called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die of thirst. We go out and we slay the enemy, and then we need something from God. We need something to replenish the strength. And, fall, and, and he said, Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God clave out a hollow place in that jaw, that thing that had given him victory. And it says, And there came water thereforth. And when he had drunk, his spirit came and he revived. Let me tell you, when you get victory over the enemy in your life, there's some kind of source of strength that can come out of that. That, that word that you used to whack him down, that thing that you used to, to beat him down, that scripture that you might have used, now it comes out and you can really worship. And you can really praise and you can really enter in and say, oh God, you're my deliverer. You're my healer. You're my peace. You're everything I have need of. And you can be refreshed from that. And in Isaiah 29, it talks about those that would come against us. And the multitude, Isaiah 29, verse 7, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, which is Jerusalem in this case, even all that fight against her and her munition and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. So they're coming against Jerusalem. It shall be even as when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he waketh, and his soul is empty. This is what he's going through, the person that's come against us. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, and he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, because his soul hath appetite. Even shall all the multitude of all the nations 
be that fight against Mount Zion. They'll be like that man that dreamed and thought he could, but he came up empty. They couldn't get to us, and they wanted more. They were left wanting. I want to look at one more story as we would, and that was, was David, the story of David. And now David was a man after God's own heart. And David was a man that was, was anointed because he was, he was the right kind of man that God wanted. And he might not have been what we would have picked, but he was what God picked. And he, in, he was anointed at first, and right away he was sent out to take care of the sheep. But in time, he was moved closer and closer to the throne. But as he was moved closer to the throne, the enemy was out after him more. Because Saul was out after him. And then there was a day when the Philistines were also out after him. So you've got enemies on all sides. And you've got a situation on all ends that's not quite what it ought to be. And, and he felt the fear. He felt all the things that he felt. And it says, now when David was in his worst time, when he was a fugitive, he had already been anointed. Just like the bride is anointed to overcome today. Anointed to take her throne. Anointed to sit with him in heavenly places. He knew what he was to be. He was to be a king. God said so. And yet he was hated. He was standing in between two great deep fires. Here was the Philistines on one side after him. Here was Saul on the other. And he was a man without a nation. Just as the church stands today, the true church of the living God, without a denomination or anything else. This is from the message, Why Little Bethlehem, in 1958, right at the end of the year. She stands alone, but yet she had the anointing poured on her. She knows what she is. I love when he says, she knows what she is. That's that quote from the church age book. When the bride knows what she is and what she stands for, and that she can do the greater work, she will be an invincible army what she is, when we know what we are, when we know what our inheritance is, what, are, what is behind us, who is behind us, when we know what we are, how in the world can it ever come to pass? The devil on both sides, we find ourselves in these spots. Driving at David, he had taken refuge in strongholds in the wilderness and caves, trying to hide out with a little band of faithful warriors, just a few believing like him, but those men believed God that this would be the king. They were supporting something that they knew. So is the believers today who is hit out from place to place, but they know who is going to becoming king. Brother Branham would say, and this was in 1958, two years before Kennedy was elected, so the campaigns would have been on. Brother Branham would say, I don't care who's going to be president. We don't care who's the president. But we know he's coming. We know that he's coming. And it looks farther away than it ever did when science is trying to overrule. But there is something else. Dropping down, these warriors that was with David stayed right by his side. If a Philistine had come up, he had to fight. Whatever it was, they were picked on every side. Poor David, and his mind all confused. He said, why, why, why is it this way, Lord? He says, you know, leaders sometimes go through the things that the congregation don't know about. We need to pray for Brother Harold and Brother Ed. They don't know. When you think of the promises God has made, then why didn't it come to pass? Brother Brandon would say, these leaders don't always tell their congregation. They don't tell the people they associate with that there's many frustrations in the heart of a real leader, just like David had been going through. Surrounded on all sides on a hot day in the backside of the, the desert, so to speak. David sitting there, his throat burning him. It was in the middle of summer. The Philistines was taking advantage of that split between David and Saul. And Saul was looking for David everywhere. And the Philistines also. And the Philistines looking for the Israelites. Talk about a time of confusion. Just about like it is now. David had taken refuge in this little place, in this little shelter, everywhere he could get, the little strongholds that he could get into. Then he got up to the mountain on that hot middle of the summer when the heat was tremendous, his throat parching and frustrations and fears in his heart and wondering, oh God, how could it be? You poured that oil upon me, not because I chose myself, but because you chose me. Why did you call me from herding the sheep out yonder? And told me, you give me this to serve your people. And here you got me between the fires anyhow. That was what was going through his heart. He needed a drink of water. He needed something to pick him up. He sat down on the hill and he looked down. And there was the Philistines had come in and garrisoned right in Bethlehem, his little home. 
Then his little city was under government control of the enemy. And not only that, but his father's house, Jesse's house, was under the bondage to the Philistines. He's in a bad spot. This is not just affecting him. It's his city. It's his family. And there was his own nation, his own church against him. Now the enemy he was fighting. Here is the church people he was fighting. It's that Brother Branham says, not because he wanted to, but because he was forced to do it. Dropping down. So here he was on that hot day, no doubt, walking back and forth, looking down through that long valley of about 25 miles down there and back. His own father's house in bondage. There was Saul just across yonder, dropping down. Here was David standing there, not knowing what to do, yet knowing that on him rested the anointing. When we know what we are, when we know who we are, the enemy can go all the way around us. The enemy can give you quite the week. He can give you quite the week after a set of special meetings. He can give you quite the week after anything. But when we know what we are, when we know that we're called, what can stop us? What can stop him? He's my God, and he's all-powerful. David, in his own mind, was frustrated. I can imagine. Let's watch him a minute. Go back there and sits down, looks down and thinks, my own beloved city, Bethlehem, down there. And he begins to think. And in the heat of the battle, David begins to think, oh, I can remember them nights I laid by the hillside. I remembered them as I watched the stars and they moved. And he begins to think of the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He needed a drink. And the enemy wants to keep us from getting a drink. The enemy wants to point at the experiences that we've had before. We come to a special meeting or a youth service or a camp service or just any service, but God touches you. And within days, the devil tells you that was not a real drink of water. The devil tells you that was only emotion. And look, because you fell. Obviously, it didn't keep you. The devil will go into your mind and begin to play with your mind and, and cloud up even the memory of how God moved in your life before. And he'll say, that wasn't real. He'll say, look at that person. They were under that anointing too, and they're gone. He'll look at those times of refreshing, and he'll try to discredit them. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to stop you from getting another drink. Because that was real. And he's trying to hold you back from the next drink. I'm sick and tired of my own flesh from Monday to Friday when I feel that, that, that something that would come and bother me or, you know, you get into those moods or those things that are not quite of God. They're your flesh. And how long it takes for me to recognize that's just the devil and how long it takes for me to get up and start to fight him. We should be quicker than that. We should recognize when something starts to set into place, when something starts to bother, he comes in so subtly. He comes in just in a roundabout way through the back door and a familiar feeling and, and whatever it would be. You're going, you're, 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 you're loading up your, your work on Monday morning. I'll just, I work at a computer. You load up your news sites. You click through the things. You, why do we go back to, why do we spend that much time on social media? Why do I? it's not giving me anything. It's, it can be okay for a little bit. I, I'm not... But it pulls us away. And then it takes us another step and another step. And soon Sunday feels like a distant memory and it's only Monday. And then Tuesday and we've got to struggle your way to church on Wednesday. Is it just me? But why... Can we not learn? And I believe we can learn. And we are learning to overcome. And we're learning to not just overcome, but to keep the punches off of us. To overcome is to keep life inside of you, Brother Branham said. And we want to learn how the enemy comes at us, how he punches at you and at me, but we want to look at ourselves. How does he normally get to us? Where do I fall? Where are my weak points? Because he knows them. He sure knows them. And how do I start to learn, okay, when this happens and when, the, and start to learn to keep 
the punches off of us. It's not how long we can make the battle last. How quick can we stop the battle? A good way to overcome the devil is go get another drink. He can be on the run after you, but there is a river. Now, his, now, now, now David begins to cry out, oh, if I only had a drink, and that was the right thing to desire. He begins to say, sir, give me this water. Okay, I'll get into the river. Okay, there's the river, living water coming to me. I want to be well. He begins to say, give me, if I only could have a drink of that water that was in Bethlehem. He said, Brother Brandon would say, you know, Palestine had some bad water. They had some evil waters. And they would have, even have black water fever and stuff, a lot of alkaline in, it, alkaline in it. But Bethlehem had good water. But Bethlehem is the water seep of the province. There was no water like Bethlehem had. When I, David used to think when I'd take my sheep and start out in the morning, I'd go down by that old well and drink. Oh, how cool and how sweet and how it quenched my thirst Oh, after dreaming of all his childhood days and the victories and see him in the place that he's sitting there, he screamed, oh, somebody bring me a drink from Bethlehem. And there was someone that heeded the call. Now his warriors could not interpret his thinking, but brother, they loved him with all that was in him. The least of his desires was a command to them. Three of his mighty men pulled out their swords, slipped off from the camp and cut their way 25 miles to get a drink of water. That's the fight that we ought to have against the enemy. To get our drink of water. There is a river. My, my subtext, go get a drink. That's the fight we ought to have. There's 25 miles between them and me and that drink of water. Okay, let's go. Okay, let's go. Let's go get him. My king needs a drink. I need a drink. David and they're going, no doubt, wondered, where are they at? What have they done? Where did they go? Did they know they're jeopardizing their life? They're right in the jaws of death through a 25-mile line laying in ambush everywhere and the swords are flickering and the shields are blasting, but their man, their brother, that they believed would be a king, desired a drink. Oh, brother, if the warriors today are willing to cut their way through formalism, doubts, and unbelief to refresh in the presence of the Lord. His desires, Brother Brandon would say, to the the Lord, the least of your desires, if it's Africa, India, if it's in the street, wherever it is, the least of your desires, Lord, it's my command. Death don't mean a thing to me. Popularity, my, what am I? What will it be? It means nothing. Lord, it's to fulfill your desires. That's the warriors that's standing by the side of him. If they call me holy roller, if my name is scandalized, if they kick me in the streets, that doesn't matter. Your desire is my command. That's the real soldier. What did they do? They fought their way through until they got to that well. And they dipped their water, their, the, the, the bucket of water out, and they come back. Then they had to come back, and they had to come back fighting with that drink. Come back to the king and cutting their way from right to left until they come into the presence of David and, and said, Here you are, my Lord. Oh, my, what? A man that was disgraced, David. The man that was hated by the church. A man that was hated by the king. A man that was hated by the Philistines. That little group followed him. Today, I'll tell you, he says, we'll sing great songs and we'll build great churches. We have great anthems. We praise to him like that. But Jesus said, we do all these things, but in your heart, you're far from me. For your doctrines, the commandment, we, a fresh drink of water is, is, is true worship to God. The, the water that we give to God is, is when we have a clear heart and we're washed and we're pure. And then we begin to lift it up to God. And we're free. They, they would say, I think in Psalms 137, and they, they sat, we sat down by the Babylon rivers, the rivers of Babylon, the children of Israel, in captivity. And they required of us a song. Uh, how cruel is this? They said, sing about Zion. And there they are, stuck in captivity by the rivers of Babylon. They said, how can we sing? We're not free. We're not where we ought to be. But when you're free... When you're away from those rivers and when you're drinking from the river of life... Worship comes forth. There's something real that happens. David picks up this bucket of water. He looks at it, and the Bible said that he poured it out on the ground and said, Lord, be far from me that I would drink that. Now, a little quote that someone had sent me 
from the church age book about this part. And it was from the Pergamus church age. And, and I'm nearly finished. But the Pergamus church age, under a little section called Satan's Seat. And Brother Branham, in that section of the church age book, would go on to talk about Babylon, which was Satan's seat. The reason that this part of the eulogy of the Spirit, he says, the reason that we call this Satan's seat, the reason that this is in the church age book, is because that these brave soldiers of the cross in the Pergamian church age were overcoming Satan, where? Right in the midst of his own throne room. Not in the the throne room of God. Right in the midst of Satan's own throne room. We are right now surrounded by the rivers of Babylon. The Euphrates, the Nile, the Tigris, all of those spirits, all of those things around us and coming after us. And here we are overcoming in the midst of his own throne room. That must drive him crazy. And I love it. They were winning the battle through the name and face of Jesus right in the camp of the leaders of darkness. What a tremendous commendation. Then Brother Branham makes a comparison. Like the mighty men of David, who invaded the camp of the enemy to bring David thirst-quenching water. And now he doesn't just talk. Many times we've talked about that story, about how David brought, they brought the king a drink, and we need to bring God a drink. But there's, the scripture has compound meanings. So these giants of faith, those men of the Pergamian church age, and I believe today too, invaded the realm of Satan's earthly stronghold and by preaching and exhorting brought the water of salvation to those who lived under the shadow of death. Not only do we need a drink, and I'll encourage you, if you need a drink tonight, it's yours. It's free. Go get it. Step into the river. Step until it's ankle high, till it's loin high, till it's over your head. Go swim. It will change your life. It will change your attitude. It will change everything. It will change your external circumstances. But that's the other thing, is you can bring someone else a drink. What's your need and what's your cry? Who in your life needs something that that you can go out and say, God, I want to go not just get myself a drink, but I want to go to Satan's throne room, and I want to defeat him in his own throne room, and I want to bring them a drink by the preaching, by the exhorting, by whatever means that God can use you for, and bring the waters of salvation to those who lived under the shadow of death. We're called to overcome. It's amazing to me when you look at those dry bones in Ezekiel 37. They didn't have ears. Faith comes by hearing. They couldn't get faith that way. They didn't have ears. They were dry bones. But the power of the spoken word from Ezekiel. Someone else. Someone removed. Just like Jarius, whose faith was for his dead daughter. She could have no more faith to save herself. Those bones could have no more faith to raise themselves, but there was someone else that God wanted to use. What's your need and what's your cry? Who in your life do you need to speak and say, oh, dry bones, live again? I have a need for my daughter, Jarius would say, and Jesus would honor that faith, and from that time, she was raised by the faith of someone else miles away. He had gotten her a drink when she couldn't Help herself. David's mighty men fought to bring him a drink. No matter our spot in life, we can get up and begin to fight to get our drink. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. We can do this in faith knowing there is a river. The streams whereof make glad the city of God. There's a river of living water. There's a fountain open in the house of David. I wonder if the musicians can come and we'll sing that little song that I I haven't gotten this song out of my head for weeks. And there is a river that flows from deep within. I wonder if we could all stand. I'm sorry, I don't know how to end a service very well, but... If there's something you have need of, God's here. I believe he's here. I feel him. I know he's here. He's here where two or three are gathered together. Reach out. and Go get a drink. We'll start with that first verse. 
There are, there was a thirsty woman. She was drawing from a well. Her life was ruined and wasted, and her soul was bound. For hell, but then she met the master, and he told her of her sin. He said, "If you just drink." This water will never thirst again. Oh, and there is a river. There's a vast supply. 